to our scripture. The passage for today is Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Let's read from verse 1 to 6. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn one at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Good morning, Renal. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be worshiping with you. Uh, my name is Luke Wu. I'm the assistant pastor here at Renal, and it's my pleasure to preach. God's word this morning. Before we go into it, I want to give a quick recap of where we are and what we've been doing at our church. We've been studying the book of Nehemiah, and we're at chapter 4. And in chapter 1, uh, we found about this guy named Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to the king, meaning he's one of his assistants. And the king is the king of Persia, although Nehemiah is an Israelite. And now the reason why he's in Persia is because Israel had been conquered by all these nations, Assyria, Babylon, and now Persia. And so they're in exile. Now as he was serving this king, he hears that his hometown of Jerusalem is in crumbles. It's, the walls are broken down. They're a desolate place. And as he hears that, he breaks down and he cries out to the Lord for help. Chapter 2, we see that God gives him an opportunity to ask the king, to allow him to go back to his hometown and to rebuild these walls and the temple. And by God's grace and favor, the king allows him to go. Chapter 3, we're now in Jerusalem and Nehemiah's rallying the people up. And now they're together in one unified fashion, building the wall. This man and next to this man and next to this man. And they do God's work. Now we're in chapter 4. And here, as the work is being done, we now start to see opposition. For the next few chapters, we're going to see a series of oppositions. And today, specifically, we're going to see the ridicule that comes as a form of this opposition. So we're going to study just what happens when such ridicule takes place. Ridicule takes place. We're going to do that in three headings. Number one, we're going to look at this ridicule, three R's. And number two, we're going to see the response to that ridicule. And finally, the resolve while in the midst of ridicule. Okay? The ridicule, the response, and the resolve. And that's going to be our plan for this morning. So with that, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help because we believe that it's not just simply information we're learning. It's God's spirit working in our hearts through his word. Let's ask him for his help. Lord, as we even attempt to dig your very words of life, we pray for your help. God, 
Apart from you, Lord, these words would just simply be just letters on a page. We will be unconcerned. God, there will be no fruit. But God, we believe that these words are the words of life. It can raise even dead bones to life, God. It can raise our dead hearts to life. But God, we know in order for that to happen, your spirit must come and help us to embrace and expect you to do something through your word. Give us that expectation by your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. So first, let's look at the ridicule. Now, upon this first heading, we're going to look at the antagonist in the story. And this morning, as with every other morning, I, I, I encourage you to leave your Bibles open or, or, or keep your phones on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humbly ask for 15% of your batteries this morning as you leave it on, because we're going to look each verse by verse, all right? So in verse 1, we're introduced, Senballat, and he is Senballat the Horonite. Now, he's the governor of this region above Jerusalem or, or Judah, and he was more or less uh, one of the leaders of these groups of nations around, these smaller factions around Jerusalem. Now, I'm calling him the governor of Samaria, which is funny because we don't actually see him labeled as the governor of Samaria in our passage, do we? We just simply see him jeering at the Jews in the presence of his friends, in the presence of his, bro- of his brothers, and the army of Samaria. So you can assume perhaps he has some kind of influence or some kind of leader, but we know that he was the governor of Samaria. Why? Because we have archaeological evidence that he was. Now, in the early 1900s, we discovered a collection of parchments called papyri, And one of them dates back to the exact time of Nehemiah. And in it, there's a letter where at the end of this letter, it says, this letter is to Deliah and Shelemiah, the sons of Sanballat, who is the governor of Samaria. And I mention this to remind us that we are not reading a fable here. It is not a legend. It's not some story passed down in Israel culture. We're talking about actual people involved in an actual construction in a specific place, time, and the recordings of what God was doing in that specific place and time. Even last year in June, they discovered portions of this wall, eight foot thick. You can go there and see it for yourself. So what is recorded of this man, Simbalat, this governor? Look at verse 1. We hear that as we, Nehemiah, was building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He hurls insults at them. He mocks what they're doing. Now look at verse 1, and I want you to note how the passage reads, he was angry and greatly enraged. Now if you stop for a second... The Bible is saying the same thing twice, isn't it? He was angry and greatly enraged. Okay? That's the same thing, to be angry or to be enraged. So why does the Bible do that? And this is just a tip. As you read the Old Testament, whenever you read two similar words right after each other, what the Hebrew is doing is trying to emphasize it. So you can translate it as, he was really, 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 really angry. And that's what scripture is doing. And we do that all the time. Uh, for example, say that in grade school, you had a friend who was of the opposite gender, okay? And you liked this friend, but somebody comes up to you and says, do you like that girl? What do you say? 
You say, yeah, I like her, but I don't like like her. Because we know if you liked liked her, I have some gossip that I need to do. Right? There's a difference between like and like like. And there's a difference between angry and angry angry. Sambalat was really angry. And you can get a sense of how angry he was. And it's not a one-time thing because we see him mentioned in chapter 2. And there he was displeased. Now he's angry. And as we continue to study Nehemiah, we're going to see him do some crazy things. He's going to actually try to plan to have Nehemiah assassinated. You can see his anger, his anger is going to start to escalate. In our passage, he lays out a series of insults, starting at verse 2. And these insults, even though he was furious, they're not these random, uh, disconnected, uh, blurting out of insults. It's not like he was just so frustrated he didn't know what to do with himself and he just uh, said whatever came to mind. You know, I used to do that when I was younger at the playground when you make fun of each other. You know, sometimes they get the best of you and you're just so frustrated you don't know what to say. My go-to line was, well, my dad can beat up your dad. (laughs) Can't beat that, right? So it wasn't like that where he just, you know, didn't know what to say. He actually very well thought out what he was going to say because there's meaning behind each of these insults. Significant meaning. Look, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it by themselves? He goes, are they going to sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? He even says, or his friend says, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down the stone wall. Now, we're going to study each of these insults. I'm going to break it down into three more categories. So first, he calls the Jews feeble. And he asks a rhetorical question, are they going to restore themselves? And of course, the answer in his mind is, of course not. There's no way that they're going to rebuild this wall. Why? Because they're weak. They have no power, no resources. They have no experience in constructing this wall. They're a bunch of exiles and and desolate people in poverty after they're run over by the Persians. So what is he saying? Ultimately, he's saying, you Jews, you are not able to do God's work. Consider who God is, and now you You're going to be the vessels that carry out what God is doing? Why would God use you? Look at the scope of the project that you have to complete in front of you. We don't have the exact specifications of Nehemiah's wall, but we do have the wall today around Jerusalem. So if you want to make at least a similar comparison, the wall is two and a half miles long. The average height being about 40 feet tall, 8 feet thick. 34 watchtowers, seven or eight main gates. And so he's saying, look at who you are. Look at what you have to do. You think you can make that and do God's work. That's what he's saying. What else is he saying? He's saying, are you going to sacrifice? And that seems odd. What is he talking about? Why would you, you know, if you're making fun of somebody, why would you ask that question? And what he's saying is, Are you going to be making sacrifices and offerings and and worshiping the Lord after you complete this? Because that's what you would do after you complete such a project. You would have a worship service commemorating what you had done. If you were here with us a few years ago when we started Renewal Mainline, what did we do? We had a commemoration service celebrating what God is doing and likely... That would, they would do the same thing if they finished the wall. So Sam Bell is saying, do you think you're going to have a commemoration service and worship the Lord after completing this wall? Do you think you're going to finish in a day? And he's asking, he's pretty much saying, what good is all this worship, all these prayers, all these spiritual things that you're doing? What good is it? Is it even worth it? 
And he's making fun at the impracticality of, of worship and of their faith and their prayers. And him saying, are you going to finish it in a day? He's looking at just how ambitious they are. And he's saying, this is something that requires perseverance and a long period of time. And he says, you know what? I give you this. You are making sacrifices. I see a lot of people coming together to build this wall. But here's this. How long are you able to keep this up? Yeah, maybe you can do this for a day or two, but this is going to take a long time. And so at the crux of his insult, he's saying, you're not going to persevere. You're not going to be able to finish this. And lastly, let's see what he's saying. So, so far he's saying, you're not able to do God's work. Even if you start, you're not going to persevere and finish it. And finally, he says this. He says, your work isn't going to last. Because him and his friends are saying, a fox is going to climb on the wall, and the weight of the fox is going to make that wall crumble. What is he saying? Your work will not endure. It will be vanished. It will go away because of the bad quality of work that you are doing. Even a fox is going to make it crumble. And all that you are doing, all that you're investing And it's not going to last. He's asking, what's the point? What good is it going to do? Now, these words, they were hurled at Nehemiah and the uh, Israelites about 2,000 years ago. And yet, don't these words sound so familiar to us today? Because when it comes to, to living righteous lives, trying to be holy, trying to love God and to be faithful, when it comes to believing in what God is trying to do in your life, in this church, don't we hear the very same thing? You're not able to do God's work. You're too feeble. You're too weak. You're never going to faithfully obey what he calls you to do. Even if you start, perhaps a day, perhaps a few weeks, you're never going to persevere and finish. And on top of that, even if you do, it's not going to last. It's not going to endure. And I'm not a veteran Christian, let alone a veteran pastor. I know many of you in this room have been Christians longer than I have. But as I was reflecting, you know, this year marks my 10th year as a renewal pastor, fifth year ever since I came here from West Philly. Now, even in that short amount of time, I don't think I can count the number of times I heard the same three things whether it be in relation to my relationship with God, trying to be like Christ, or the ministry that I'm trying to do here at our church, I hear all the time, you're too weak, Luke. You're too young. What good can you do? You're never going to faithfully obey what God calls you to. Even if you start it, you're not going to persevere. You're not going to finish and the ministries that you're investing in, the people you're trying to shepherd, you think they're going to turn out good 10 years from now? And as Christians, we hear that all the time. We hear them in many different ways, don't we? Peter Abelard, he was a, a medieval theologian in the 1100s, and he says this. He says, as Christians, we have three enemies, three temptations. Number one, the world. Number two, Satan. And number three, ourselves. Because people in the world, they will accuse you and say things like, why do you waste your time with church? 
Why are you serving? Why are you sacrificing your time, your money, and resources to such a, even a bigoted institution? Aren't your nights too valuable to go to Bible study? Aren't your Sunday mornings too valuable? What good is it going to do for you to pray for your children at night? Let's be practical here. Or the devil will accuse who are you to think that you can add one inch to God's kingdom? What did you do last night? When was the last time you prayed? What are the sins that keep coming back in your life day after day? And with your very own hands, you're going to work to build God's kingdom, perfect, holy, righteous, eternal? Your apathetic lifestyle? Who are you kidding? Sometimes the voice comes from ourselves, and those are the hardest words, aren't they? When we ourselves mock our own desires to do what God's doing, laying upon our shoulders weights upon weights of guilt and sin and shame. And now when all these things are put together, what happens is we start to doubt. And we ask, is it really worth it? Am I wasting my time here? All this that I'm trying to do as a Christian, will it ultimately matter? See, this is what Sembalat's doing. Let's look at the response to that ridicule now. Number two. Now, if you've been with us studying this book of Nehemiah, we at least see that for Nehemiah, that his response to many of these things is prayer, and that's not going to change here whether it be an opposition or an opportunity, he prays. And we saw that when he first hears about the devastation in his hometown, right? He continues to pray even as he asks the king to let him go back. And so we're going to see the same response of prayer even now when he faces opposition. And so for him, you can say that it's, it's almost instinctive for him to first and always go to God in prayer. And just to reemphasize that and to remind us, I just want to uh, say a quote that Corey Ten Bloom, this great Christian writer, she once asked a question. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Let me ask you. Is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tire? And for Nehemiah, we can say, yes, it's his steering wheel, it's his transmission, his engine, his radio. It's his go-to. Now, we've established this, so this isn't new, but what I want to do today is go a little bit further just to understand just how much he depends on prayer. And we can do that by looking at the situation that he's in. So we've established that he's being mocked, some ballots throwing all these insults, and they do hurt. Words do hurt, creating this doubt. But furthermore, if you remember... Sambalit, he's in Samaria, and he's in an area north of Jerusalem, and he's not alone. He's in the presence of other rulers. For example, like Tobiah, the Ammonite. He's in front of Gashom, the Arabs, and he's in the midst of armies. So what is he doing? Think about Braveheart. Think about any war movie. As he's saying these things, he's gathering up his allies and troops, and coincidentally, or I think sovereignly, he's in the north, Tobiah's in the east, Gashom's in the south. That's not listed, but the Ashdodites are on the west. What are they doing? You and I know they're surrounding Israel, getting ready to attack. And that's what Nehemiah sees. So it's not just these words. He's not just writing an email. 
They're actually getting ready. Now, for him to actually see this around him, and then the first thing to do is get on your knees, think about that. I tried to think, if I was in Nehemiah's situation, I hear these things and also see these armies around me, what would I do? Immediately, I would count how many troops I have. I would write an email to the king of Persia, hey, I need a little help here. Can you send some troops? You said I can come back. I would start trying to rally up my troops. I would immediately go to action. So do you see just how much he depends on prayer? What I would do is I would start seeing this difficulty in opposition and I would stop focusing on what God is doing with this wall. I'll be convinced that my attention should go there, not God. And that's what opposition tends to do. It takes your focus. It takes your attention away. It robs you of your fixation upon God and what he is doing. If you remember with me in the Gospels, Peter, one time he sees Jesus walking on the water, and he's so excited to be with Jesus, he goes to him and he wants to draw near to him, and Jesus enables him to walk on the water, and he's just fine. But as soon as the storm comes, where does Peter's eye go? His eyes goes to the waves, the wind, the storm, and as soon as he loses sight, he drowns. That's what opposition does. As soon as we lose sight of God, what he is doing in the wall, start looking at these guys and start making decisions and actions based on what they are doing, not what God is doing, we will drown. And this is what I call faithless action. Faithless action, without prayer, without seeking God, trying to act with your own might and your own wisdom, your own resources. And consider what Nehemiah does. He doesn't panic. He doesn't simply try to solve the problem on his own. He goes to God. But don't get him wrong, okay? Because he doesn't just pray either. Because if all he did was pray, then you would get the opposite. You would get actionless faith. Take a couple of minutes to think about what that is. I'll be honest, it took me five minutes to think about these things, okay? Don't get them confused. To just pray is actionless faith. To just do without God is faithless action. Nehemiah is not doing any of these things, either of these things. And how do I get that? Well, look at verse 6. After he prays, what does he do? So we built the wall, <laughs> went back to building, <laughs> picked up this shovel. Let's keep doing what God wants us to do. See, it wasn't just prayer and faith and waiting around for God to show up. It wasn't actionless faith. At the same time, it wasn't just acting without depending on God. It wasn't faithless action either. It was one where you fully throw yourself upon God's mercy and his provision and his guidance. You're on your knees. You're pleading with God. And after the tears have fallen, you get up and you pick up that shovel and you get to work. It's faith-filled action. I, I, that one I came up with myself, so I'm happy. Faith-filled action. That's what he's doing. Faith-filled action. It's important that we know the distinction between the two. Why? Because if you're honest with yourself, we tend to lean towards one or the other. Let me, let me read this quote from D.A. Carson. And, and like many of his quotes, he's a theologian and pastor. We've got to take our time reading his quote, okay? Look at what he's saying. People do not drift towards holiness. Think about it. Have you ever drifted 
toward holiness? Apart from grace-driven effort, and I highlighted that because surprise, or it shouldn't be a surprise, grace and effort can be in the same uh, term. He says, people do not gravitate toward godliness or prayer or obedience to scripture, faith, or delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, call it faith. Superstition saying things like, everything will be okay. I hope things turn out for good without really banking on what God is saying in his word and his promises. That's superstition. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. I'm not going to do much because if I start doing this, then I'm going to be legalistic, so I'm going to go the other way. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. As a result, our church at Renewal has been trying to be very intentional to help us stay in that fine balance, trying to provide opportunities for faith-filled action. I want you to right now take a few seconds and honestly ask yourself, where are you at? Are you someone who's, who leans toward faithless action or actionless faith? Are you someone who's all about doing the concrete, practical things in your life and in this church without really praying and seeking God? Perhaps then for you, you need to go to God and pray for, for the Holy Spirit to breathe life into what you're doing. Because you know what? One second of spirit-filled action is better than 100 years of your obedience. I'd rather have that. And so maybe practically for you, your next step is to go to our prayer meeting this afternoon. Just pray. Maybe your next step is to pray every night for something for this church, for your CGs, community groups, for the retreat that's coming up, for your families, for God to actually do something in your spouse, in your children, in your work, in your school, your classmates. Perhaps you lean towards actionless faith. And all you do is pray, and the question you ask time to time is, God, is how long? Do something, God. <laughs> and we confess all the time, time and time again, God, I love you. I'm committed towards you. I want to know you more. But is that all that's been in your life this past year, these past years? Making these grand statements? I'm really convicted and always ending there. That was a great message today. I feel bad. Got work tomorrow. That's it. There's more to that, you know. We pray. We have faith. We turn to God, but then we pick up our shovels. And so maybe for you, it's starting to think in your life, in your practical life, with the people around you, with what you have, the gifts, the resources, what does it look like to have faith-filled action? And I want to ask a question that, that I was asked when I was younger. This person once asked me, he said, Luke, have you ever in your lifetime, have you fully dove into getting to know who this Jesus is and really investigate all that he offers and all the things you hear about joy that can't be taken away, 
love for people even though they spit on you? Have you ever dove into that and see if that's really true? And once I did, I can contest, I can be honest, and say I never turned back. And I want to ask you the same question. We talk about knowing God more. Have you really dove into his word and treated it like words of life? When you pray, have you actually prayed as if you're speaking to a living, powerful God? And when you hear things like the Great Commission, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them, training them up. Have we said yes and amen, but have you actually taken a step to do that? Next week, we have our discipleship class. I invite you guys to come. If you want to know how we can take steps towards that. You see, we're trying to be very intentional. Faith and action. So perhaps for you, it's starting with signing up to set up chairs on a Sunday or helping out with children's ministry or asking your CG leader, community group leader, you can lead a Bible study and help out. Where are you at? Finally, let's look at the resolve. Did I do that um, on purpose or did I? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> at the resolve. We've seen the ridicule against what God was doing. We saw the response of faith-filled action, one that comes out of prayer. Now, we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at the content of Nehemiah's prayer. And when we do, we're going to see the resolve that he has, even in the midst of ridicule. Now, we pay close attention to what Nehemiah actually prays. It's going to startle us. So look at verse 4. I'm going to read it for us. Hear, O God, we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out of your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of builders. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Think about what he's praying. He's praying to God that their taunts will turn back on their heads, that they will be plundered, that they will be sold off as slaves. So he prays against their physical welfare, but furthermore, if you keep going, he prays against their spiritual warfare in verse 5. Don't cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted from your sight. That's pretty harsh, and that sounds like the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing as Christians, right? Isn't it Jesus who says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? He doesn't say, Don't pray. He doesn't say pray against those who persecute you. Doesn't Jesus say things like, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The answer is, yes, we are supposed to pray like that, the way Jesus taught us to, to love and to pray for our enemies. So then the question is, how do we reconcile what Jesus says to what we read in Nehemiah's prayer? And to answer that, let's look and see what Nehemiah is not doing. What is he not doing? Well, in his prayer, he's not praying these curses upon them because he himself wants a personal vengeance against them. Do you see? That's not what he's saying. It's not a, it's just a, simply a personal matter for Nehemiah because what Nehemiah is ultimately angry and concerned about is what he says in verse 5. You have provoked God. Do you see? It's not because he is hurt, his reputation 
he's insulted, he's angered because they're insulting God and what God is doing and God's agenda. And that's what we call righteous anger. Psalm 139 says, God, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred and I count them as my enemies, not because of a personal thing, but because they hate you, God. And so his prayer is ultimately a call for, for justice, for vindication. That's what he's doing. And yes, we can and we are encouraged to pray for justice and vindication, especially in the midst of evil. Why? Because God hates injustice. He hates evil. And these kinds of prayers encourage us to cry out in the face of injustice and evil, not simply for personal matters, and we need to check our hearts, but because ultimately injustice and wickedness offends God. And yes, we can call evil for what it is, and there is this gospel balance between mercy and grace and forgiveness, but also justice and righteousness. And God upholds both in the gospel. So just to help us understand this, there's a story of how a boy was spending time with his father. And he was reading these psalms. And some of these psalms have similar uh, messages, kind of praying these curses against enemies. And the boy goes to his dad and says, Dad, I thought Jesus taught us to pray and love our enemies. How come these prayers are actually praying against the enemies? And the father said this, you're right. Of course, we're supposed to pray the way Jesus taught us, to love and to pray for them. But then he goes, but son, if someone entered our house tonight and he murdered your mother and he escaped and the police came and others joined them and they were all trying to catch him, he goes, would you not pray to God that they would succeed and arrest him and that he would be brought to justice? And the answer is yes. And to those are victims of evil. Yes, you can pray for justice when, for those when an extremist group comes from house to house taking lies. Yes, in that moment, pray for justice. Pray for vindication. But you leave that justice up to God. Not to justify your own personal vengeance because Romans 12 clearly says, repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so Nehemiah, he's praying for justice, but he leaves it up to God and his vengeance, which is why he's able to pick up the shovel, not a sword. Do you see? Staying with God's agenda and working on the wall rather than taking a sword to end others' lives. It's a kind of trust in God's justice that enables you to have this resolve especially in the midst of opposition. Now, it's very easy to walk away from this passage with all these lessons that we've learned. And it's all very easy to walk away from all these chapters as well and just simply say, there are these great lessons that we can get from Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah 1, we can learn the lesson of what it means to be a great leader like Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, we can see what it takes to, to be bold, that's a great lesson. If you want to be an effective leader, you have to have courage and be bold. 
What's the lesson for chapter 3? The lesson is when all, all these people are unified and have one vision, there's going to be success. And we can be very tempted to just simply walk away from these chapters with lessons upon lessons. And you know what? Yes, there are lessons, and God's Word does provide lessons. But if that's the only thing we're going to get, then there's a problem. Because then we start to read this book like a manual, not God's Word. And we can reduce this book and our passage to this ancient self-help manual for our lives and for our church. And think about what a manual does. A manual lays out information in such a way, right? Think about a manual on building that IKEA furniture. What does it do? First, it gives instructions what you're supposed to do, right? And then it gives instructions of what you're not supposed to do. There's like an X on it or like a person with a frowny face. Don't do this. Do this, right? And we can read this passage like that. Don't do this, send ballot. Do this, Nehemiah, faith-filled action, resolve. And we can simplify this passage and just walk away. Okay, I need to live like Nehemiah. I need to curse send ballot. Good lesson, let's go home. I don't know how we started to read scripture like that. I don't know whether it's because Ikea exploded all of a sudden or, or, or just the way that we read stories, but that's not how this passage gives this message. It's not a very clear, good, or bad way. And don't get me wrong. Again, I want to emphasize, there are lessons, the laws, the proverbs. They're very clear. But again, it becomes a problem. That's the only way we read the Bible like this, especially in Old Testament narratives like this. Right? Because when we read and hear stories, we always ask the question, who's the good guy? What am I supposed to do? Or how can I identify myself with the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And frankly, we read all stories like a manual. Let me ask you this. How many of you, and this is the picture, how many of you guys have read or at least watched the Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast? I'm assuming most of you guys have, right? Okay, now, think about where you were or the time that you read or saw this story. If you're a girl or a boy growing up, who did you identify yourself with as a girl? Belle, right? Or like any other Disney story, the princess, the, the great, the, the heroic heroine, right? Or if you're a boy reading these kinds of stories, you identify yourself as the prince, the beast, the knight in shining armor, right? Because you want to be the good guy. And it's very easy to demonize Gaston, right? Gaston's the guy who leads the angry mob to go kill this beast. Now, that's a manual way of reading Beauty and the Beast, okay? That's Beauty and the Beast 101. Let me give you Beauty and the Beast 102, okay? AP. <laughs> this story was written in the 1700s in France, okay? Written by a great writer named Gabrielle Villeneuve, okay? And she was writing when France was under major social oppression, when the lower class kept getting stepped upon by the higher class. And because the lower class was poor, they were not refined. The upper class looked down on them based on their external appearances. Now, do you think she was writing this story to make little girls feel like they're pretty bells and guys feel like they're princess? No. She was writing to say, you're like Gaston. You're the angry mob. We need to change. See, 
there's more to the story than a manual. And so likewise, when we read stories like this, when we read Beauty and the Beast, and this freed me, this liberated me, because in sixth grade, our school actually did the Beauty and the Beast in play, and guess who played Gaston? The Asian kid with black hair. That was a great Gaston, but to this day, I was traumatized. But after studying this passage, I'm free. Because we are supposed to read Gaston into our lives. You're not the prince. You're not Nehemiah. You're Sanballat. You're the one who's going against God's agenda. How do I see that? Look at what Sanballat's doing. Why is he so angry? Why is he opposing Nehemiah? And ultimately, underneath it all, the crux of the issue is he has his own agenda. And when God enters the scene, it's going against his agenda. If you remember, he's controlling the land above Judah and Jerusalem. So for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, a new hero, a new prince, a new governor of Jerusalem to come and take control of the land. What is he thinking? My control is going to be compromised. I will no longer be the head honcho here. His own, his own agendas are compromised. And so, like in James 4, we see something like this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not this? That your passions, your agendas are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sambalat has his own agenda and is starting to be in danger because of God's agenda. Do you see how you and I are like him? When God enters the scene, God does something in our church. There's an opportunity here to serve and glorify God. There's an opportunity in your kids. There's an opportunity at work. God is trying to change your heart to make you more like Christ. And we see God's agenda, and then we hold on so tightly to our agenda, saying, God, no, not now. Too busy, too comfortable. I don't have time. I don't have energy. And so if I simplify this question, it's like, is it about your reputation at work or God's reputation? Is it your power and your respect as a father and a mother for your kids? Or is it about God's presence in your home? Your success at school? Or God's faithfulness over your careers? Your life that is easy without stress? Or is it about God's glory? Whenever our own agendas compete against God's, we get angry we ridicule, we mock, we push aside what God wants to do in our lives and in our church, don't we? Because if we have an agenda that's ultimately established to make ourselves feel good and comfortable and secure without a care in the world with what God is doing and His glory, then aren't we just like Sam Ballot? Isn't that the reason why we want to stay a safe distance from what God is doing? Because we know deep down inside, the closer we get to God, the agendas are going to start to fight one another. And we don't want to feel bad. We're the Sambalas, we're the Gestans, we're the enemies of God who ridicule what God is doing in this world. And Nehemiah's response and his resolve in the midst of ridicule is not representing what you and I have done. Rather, it points to the one who had the ultimate resolve in the midst of ridicule. 
Jesus had this same resolve. When as he was doing his ministry, very clearly, he sets his face upon Jerusalem. He says, it is time. And he knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and he starts walking there. And he says, the Son of Man in Jerusalem will be delivered over to the priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged, to be crucified, and he will be raised on that third day, and that is exactly what happened. He was stripped naked. They beat him. They put a scarlet robe around him. They put a twisted thorn of crowns on him and on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, Scripture tells us they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed in his hand and they struck him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of his robe, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as he hung on that cross, he heard, he saw the people walk by, scoffing with sarcastic ridicule. He saved others. Can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. And even those who are crucified with him, scripture tells us they also mocked him, saying, this is the king of the Jews. We too, brothers and sisters, have hurled sarcastic ridicule against Jesus and what he has done. When we live apart from God's agenda, we are doing the same thing because we are living our lives as if what Christ did did not matter. We're living our lives as if the cross has no importance to what we're doing right now. And that is ridiculing the work of the cross. And we too mock Christ when we live according to our own agendas and live as if God's agenda doesn't matter. And Nehemiah, we see, he prayed for justice against his enemies. He prayed for their destruction. Remember, he even prayed that some ballot and the enemy's sins won't be forgiven, right? And Jesus, the Son of God, he could have called down legions upon legions of angels to destroy us and to turn back our own ridicules against our own heads when we mock Christ, live according to our own agendas and against God, and Christ could have, just like Nehemiah, he could have said, do not forgive them. Do not blot out their sins, God. Give them what they deserve. But unlike Nehemiah, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why? Because he had a resolve to stay on plan to God's agenda. And what was his agenda? It was you. To bring you into relationship with him. And that's what enabled him to stand and face mocking and ridicule so that you and I could be with him for eternity. And the cross provides that. Let's pray.
here at Renewal, after we study God's word, we take a couple of minutes and just ask God just how he's convicting us and how he wants us to approach him now. And I want to just give you a couple of minutes. Perhaps first you can join me in asking for his forgiveness for the ways that we mocked him, by the way that we just pushed aside his agendas and put ours first. Let's repent together as a church. Join me. Forgive me, God. Forgive us, Lord. It's all about what I want. Always about what I want to do, God. Lord, we pray, Jesus. Lord, good of Jesus. Lord, good of Jesus. Next, let's just praise Him. Praising that this passage is not a manual, but is a story. So that tomorrow, when you do mess up at work, when you get angry at your kids, or when you start doubting, even though you might not have that resolve, you know Christ did. So let's praise Him for that together. And finally, let's pray. God, I want to live according to your word starting today and tomorrow. God, if there's faithless action in my life, help me to have more faith and come to you in prayer. Or if you, if you have actionless faith, you can pray to God, God, help me to have faith. Help me to trust in you to ask for your spirit. Let's pray like that before we close our time in song. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though the world and Satan and even our own hearts condemn us and accuse us, saying how weak we are, how sinful we are, how unable we are, how we're not able to persevere, but we thank you and thank you and thank you that Christ is not too weak. He can persevere and he has endured in the face of opposition. Praise you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us rise.